you're listening to the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcasts. This is Ana Sanchez, your host. I discuss evidence-based research on mental health. I dispense empathy, hope, and share with you a deeper understanding of what mental illness is all about. Together, we can raise awareness, improve attitudes, and remove the barriers to mental health. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. This is Ana Sanchez, your host. Today, I am thrilled to have Dr. Maureen Vadrine, who is a teaching clinician here at our studio. Uh, Dr. Vadrine is a professor at a private university here in Georgia. She teaches behavioral health nursing in the undergrad uh, program. She also frequently uh, is a guest lecturer, and she talks mainly about uh, the guidelines for opiate use and best practices for those who are in that field. She has graduated uh, with her master's degree in nursing in 1993. At that time, uh, they were psych CNS only, clinical nursing specialist. And uh, Psych APRN is what they were called then. Uh, She currently works at a community mental health. And then she is also, she finished her DNP in 2013. And this is an interesting uh, project and dissertation that she had under the interprofessional education of a community-based mental health treatment team on the neurodevelopmental implications of maltreatment and trauma. Thank you, Dr. Vadrine, for coming online uh, with us in our virtual podcast studio. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's my privilege. I, I'm just thrilled to uh, get into the to the details of what your specialty is, what you do out there. And I know you love to teach. I I was looking online and you were quoted that you, quote, I'm a clinician who likes to teach. And it just, um, you know, I hear a lot of good things about you from your students who come to the psych facility that uh, I worked in before. So that's a good thing. So how did you start your education, Dr. Vadrine? Tell us about that. It was a rather non-traditional beginning Mm -hmm. in that I was at Emory as an undergraduate, and I was studying the same science and math classes that all of the pre-med students were studying, but I wanted to be a veterinarian. Oh. So um, there were not very many of us. Uh, I think there were five in the little pre-vet society that we started And in the summer between sophomore and junior year, I went to the University of Florida to take several courses that were required to apply to vet school that Emory did not offer, animal science and animal nutrition. I went to the University of Florida because I was a resident of that state. Mm -hmm. And it was true at the time, and I think is probably still true, that if you were a resident of a state that had a vet school, then you really needed to go to that school because it's so hard to get in and there are so few slots that that's how they sort of, uh, you know, create um, a reasonable, manageable path for applicants. So Mm. anyway, um, during that summer, I have to say, 
it was a real reality shock. I could tell <laughs> I was surrounded by other pre-vet students. I was around the vet school. And what I saw was a lot of students with very high grade point averages and a lot of volunteer hours that were not getting in. And so I kind of freaked out a little bit. I didn't come from a family that could afford for me to be lollygagging around. Mm -hmm. After I graduated <laughs> with a degree, I either needed to be right back in school, uh, you know, in a field that would lead to some kind of a, a job, a gainful employment, or I needed to just get a job. So I um, quickly that summer um, hatched a plan to enter the Emory Nursing School, the Nell Hodgson Woodruff School of Nursing yes. at Emory. And I had several, I have several cousins and their spouses that are involved in healthcare and are nurses and so forth. So I think that's probably where the idea came from. Mm. Um, somehow without a cell phone or internet or anything like that, this is in the, um, <laughs> in the early eighties, I communicated with the administrators at the nursing school at Emory and they were very kind. Um, figured out a way for me to apply kind of at the last minute. They found a spot for me in the class. Ooh. And um, I wish I could say the rest is history. Um, not quite. <laughs> so I entered nursing school. I still, I think, was very sad that I could not go to vet school. Aww. I was not particularly enjoying nursing school until I had my psychiatric nursing course mm. and just completely fell in love. <clears throat> thought everything about it was fabulous. Um, I was then fortunate enough to be allowed to do my preceptorship, which is, you know, traditionally where you go and work at, um, at a healthcare facility, uh, sort of shadowing a nurse yeah. or precepting by a nurse. I was able to do that at a psychiatric facility. Wonderful. So it's very fortunate. Yes. It was such a blessing. Um, and then I ended up getting hired at that same place once I passed boards. Nice, nice. They saw your skills there at that time then. It's like, oh, she she knows what she's talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. I mean, it was a state psychiatric hospital, so I don't know how easy it was for them to, you know, <laughs> find nurses that uh, were willing to put it in four-wheel drive and do whatever it took to take care of those. It was teenagers at the time. I was Ooh. on an adolescent unit. Oh, wow. And, and it's a state hospital, too. I mean, you know that if it's a state-run facility, it's it's a lot of uh, patient care. Um, and, yeah, that would be a challenge, but you did it. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so you loved psych uh, in nursing school. You got precepted. You started working in a state facility. And then how did you end up going into your master's uh, in science and nursing. Right. That was a funny story too. So, uh, you know, being the new kid on the block, I ended up working a lot of odd shifts and a lot of weekends. <laughs> so I was uh, pretty consistently on the night shift on the weekends, which, um, there was a really accomplished tech, very gifted tech. He's mm. now a nurse mm. and he kept telling me, you have to meet, I can name her because she wouldn't mind at all. She would have to meet B. Yorker. And B. Yorker at the time was in charge of the graduate program in psychiatric nursing at Georgia State. B. Yorker's also an attorney. And B. Yorker now, the last time I um, was in contact with her, she was the dean of a nursing school in California. Oh, wow. So anyway, um, B. was at the time rounding as the administrator in charge as kind of a... a 
a, a side hustle, if you will, although we didn't use that terminology back then. <clears throat> I know. In the mid 80s. <laughs> B was um, making some extra money on the weekends, being the administrator in charge. So what that meant at this hospital is that she would go to each unit and kind of mm. check in. And this is, you know, two, three in the morning on a Saturday. So Ooh. Ooh. Um, anyway, this tech said, you've got to talk to B and you need to go back to school. It was oh. just like he'd already made up his mind. So um, that is exactly what happened <laughs> before <laughs> I knew it. I met B. She's um, very charismatic, very accomplished, uh, wonderful nurse. She's, uh, like I mentioned, also an attorney. So she uh, made it very easy for me to um, take the right test and do the right application. And I started back part-time. By the time I've been out of school for two years for my BSM program, I was back in a master's program. Mm, wow. How did you face those challenges working now and going into the MSN program? It went pretty well, actually. I felt very fortunate. So. I did transition over at the time. Um, there is a well-known uh, pediatric hospital mm -hmm. in the greater Atlanta area um, that started a med psych unit for children and adolescents that had co-occurring disorders. So I thought that sounded very interesting. There was a lot of buzz around it. So I decided I was up for that challenge. So um, I think by the time I started school, I probably had already transitioned to that new position. And then um, I also, during my master's program, I was in my master's program for actually three years. Um, I graduated in 1990 from my master's program. I didn't sit for the American Nurses Credentialing Center um, certification exam until 1993. So that's where that 1993 date comes in. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even know if it existed. At the time, there was an odd way that the state of Georgia was sort of letting you practice just having the masters, um, they would recognize you as a clinical nurse specialist. I don't even know if there was a test at the time. So anyway, um, scrolling back in my master's program, I also had the opportunity to work with um, a startup health maintenance organization. Um, it's no longer around, but it was very interesting. And I did work closely with a psychiatrist who would provide um, essentially a case management and treatment authorization for this HMO. So I did a lot of work on the phone, a lot of work with talking to uh, people at the hospitals, the administrators at hospitals, case managers at hospitals, authorizing treatment, things like that. Um, I also worked part-time back at the original state hospital where I'd worked, this time on a child unit. So wow. I made it work. Okay. I felt very fortunate and, in fact, um, was able to work almost full-time the whole time I was in graduate school. Ooh, wow. That, that you, you had organizational skills to be able to do that. Yes, and I also was not married. You know, I didn't uh. have children. Um, I didn't really I didn't have another job so things were a lot simpler then mm -hmm. I wish that is the case for a lot of the listeners for this podcast but somehow you juggle and you proceed I think yes I got a taste of that when you ask me about my doctoral program I can tell you more about that all right <laughs> yeah yeah please continue uh now you graduated for your MSN no tests I guess that you can remember but well you... 
you were seeing it was not for a while yeah okay yes um it was kind of a gray area honestly i would have to go back and do some homework to tell you i do know that there was some kind of an interesting process where there you could apply for recognition from the board i was very fortunate in graduate school i did most of my um precepting again back at the same state state hospital where i had worked now not once but twice as mm-hmm. a nurse on these units i also went back and did some in a graduate nurse capacity you know in graduate school did some uh precepting there and then i also was incredibly blessed to be able to uh work at grady well work i, I was precepted by a very gifted psych mental health clinical nurse specialist at Grady. And that was where I feel like my career really started to take hold. Mm. This was in the late 80s. And back then, Grady had at least a dozen uh, psychiatric mental health clinical nurse specialists. It was a very fertile ground to learn a lot and get a lot of excellent mentoring. Mm. Mm. How many mentors did you do? Did you have at that time? You had. That's a really good question. You know, one in specific, um, who's now a Jungian analyst uh, in Atlanta. Um, she went and continued her education in Switzerland. Yes, uh, we're still very close today. But just being a, it was such a incredibly dynamic environment. So uh, we had so much latitude. We were. Um, we were doing research. We mm. were presenting at conferences across the Southeast. We actually even uh, developed and held some of our own conferences. Um, I remember around that time also because, you know, Grady is right next to Georgia State. So there right. was a lot of collaboration between the uh, advanced practice nursing uh, department or, or part of the department of psychiatry and the graduate school over at Georgia State. So the American Psychiatric uh, Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Nursing Association Conference was sometime in the early 90s. And I remember that was a really fun time. We all worked on that together. So it's just a lot of very exciting things going on. And frankly, back then, um, there was less emphasis on every minute being billable which I think really contributed to a lot of professional growth. Uh, less less input or less uh, highlighting on that one, you said? Le- yeah, right. So, uh, you know, later in my career, there became much more of an emphasis on um, billing as much as possible, mm-hmm. um, to put it bluntly. And in those early days at Grady, that was not really the case. It was mm-hmm. much more oriented towards, I worked on a consultation liaison service. It was... Everything about it was multidisciplinary. Everything mm-hmm. about it was interprofessional. So we trained medical students, psychology students, psychology postdocs, uh, residents in psych- psychiatry, uh, child psychiatry fellows who were doing you know advanced education in child and adolescent psychiatry. We had advanced practice nursing students, and we went everywhere in the health system. Wow. So we we did staff support groups for the nurses. We saw all the children and adolescents admitted to the burn unit. We oh, were wow. consulted to work with patients in the inpatient wards, pediatric appointment clinics, the ICUs, 
you name it. I mean, we were everywhere. We even at that time had the, uh, we had the flexibility to be able to do things like attend juvenile court hearings for our patients, Mm -hmm. to see them in the outpatient clinics for psychotherapy. We also, I remember um, at least one time going to a patient's home for a home visit, uh, going to a child's school for a multidisciplinary staffing or planning meeting. And these are all things that I think um, would seem very foreign to today's psych MP, where it's much more rigid Rigid. and focused (laughs) on, you know, diagnostics and medication management. Mm-hmm. And the, those CPT codes and the what's billable, yes. right? Yeah, that yes. is a very different time era that you were practicing. And I think we need to pull those things back because the, these are important. The, doing psychotherapy in the juvenile court, uh, tri- uh, doing planning and meeting the school uh, for the children, that, that is very important. I agree. And I do have some concerns that we've sort of swung from one end of the spectrum to the other and that there probably is a middle ground that would incorporate the best practices of both, the more consultation liaison, educationally and um, psychotherapeutically focused aspect of our role together with the diagnostics and medication management, which is so lucrative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think where a lot of the the things that we do now are like being dictated by the insurances of what, what can be billed, the how many minutes and all of those things, which is, which is sad, I think in, in a way, uh, but I think I like the approach that you had before. This is a lot of good, good things that I hope that we will be able to continue and maybe the groundwork again, start up again. I hope so. I mean, when we talk about my nonprofit, I can tell you a little bit how I've pushed back. Mm-hmm. Now, now with, with your, with this program that you were doing with Georgia state, how did you, when you finished, you st- still continued your work at the state psych facility? Uh, no, that's a great question. I actually was hired at Grady again. You know, I was, I was so fortunate. So in undergrad, I was hired to work as a nurse after school at the same place where I had trained as a student. Mm-hmm. Same thing in grad school. So I was able to stay at the child and adolescent uh, consultation liaison service at Grady. And I don't mind mentioning Grady because <laughs> Grady is mentioned everywhere. And Grady is a place I'd still be working today if it, if I hadn't moved so far out in the country. <laughs> Just, would not trade that experience for the world. Oh, it was yes. absolutely unbelievable, especially being a teaching hospital mm-hmm. with the exposure to the, you know, more health school of medicine and Emory school of medicine and just so top notch. So anyway, um, I worked there. However, after about four years, maybe five, I had this incredible opportunity. Um, I had been uh, introduced back in nursing school my undergrad, um, to the idea of therapeutic horsemanship. Yes. And had started volunteering at a program in Atlanta and became very involved. And then when I had achieved my master's in nursing, this was in the early 90s, I actually had an opportunity to go work there full time at a therapeutic horsemanship program in Atlanta. And uh, be the you know lead instructor and volunteer coordinator, and it was a lot of work, 
again, wouldn't trade it for the world, an amazing experience, worked with clients of all ages, all kinds of special needs, uh, physical, um, I don't like the word disability, but physical accommodations needed to be made. There were folks who had some medical fragility, clients who had mental health and uh, behavioral issues, and then some with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incredible. And um, I became a Special Olympics equestrian sports coach. I got certified. I became certified nationally as a therapeutic horsemanship instructor. Wow. It was, it was wonderful. Um, I can keep talking about that if you want, but I'm going to let you guide me with some questions. <laughs> And because of that experience, you did your own 501c3. I did. So an intermediate step that I should mention is that after about a year at the community-based completely outpatient therapeutic horsemanship program in Atlanta, I had the opportunity to go work at a psychiatric residential treatment facility for teenagers mm. um, way up in Cedartown. And they had a well-established horse program. So I went there and trained with uh, a pioneer in the field, really. Um, that was an incredible experience. Uh, and then shortly thereafter launched my own therapeutic horsemanship program with a focus on mental health. That's a 501c3 or, you know, federally recognized nonprofit that's in Covington. And that was launched, co-launched with my colleague Priscilla Faulkner, who is a psychologist and her family owns the horse farm. And she, uh, you know, was involved from the very beginning and hatching that plan. And, and that is in Covington, a uh, horse time. It and it's, it's a horse-human interaction where there's growth, where there's wellness and healing at the same time. We hope so, yes. So I'm very cautious about, you know, making claims that I can't back up with empirical data. So mm-hmm. I will say that a few hedge words that uh, this is still not considered um, the standard of care. It's still not considered... Um, to be proven to be effective. However, we have a lot of anecdotal data, a lot of good case reports, a lot of lower power, lower level studies from America and other countries that do seem to be highly suggestive, especially with certain populations that psychosocial healing and growth can occur. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is amazing of what you do. When do you have time to sleep? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm very careful about that. And I know, I know that at some point you're going to ask me about any suggestions that I have for uh, sustainability in this field. Yeah. And I would say that's my number one sleep. Um, my, well, not just sleep, but just work-life balance. Yes. So I think it's essential that folks do, you know, cultivate a lot of, um, whether it's hobbies, recreation, social, spiritual ways to Uh, recharge your own batteries because this work can be extremely draining. Yes, yes, I agree. I think self-care, sleep, you know, healthy lifestyle is is a good thing for 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 those of us who work in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did you uh, start with your DNP education and how did your project come about? You are such a great interviewer. So... <laughs> Um, Bernal launched a DMP program 
in 2011 and I was in the first class uh, because I was, well, and am faculty, full-time faculty. Uh, I was able to take advantage of a really special benefit that uh, allows faculty to take courses for free. Mm. So I basically begged the director of the program to let me in. Of course, I met the requirements. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I also, um, you know, was just very keen on this opportunity. It had been a long time since I've been at school. I knew it was time for me to go back. I loved uh, what the DMP was all about in terms of um, using existing research to try to solve practice problems. And um, I started in 2011 with the very first class that um, ultimately graduated in 2013. My project, the project initially, what I wanted to do was a much more ambitious study. Uh, I wanted to do really was a PhD level original research type of approach of looking at the experience of clients who had experienced trauma, who were involved in equine-assisted psychotherapy. And I had all these biometrics, and I was going to draw salivary cortisol levels, and Ooh. I was going to have a control group. And that was shot down pretty fast, and rightly so, by my advisors at the DMP, who pointed out correctly that that was a PhD <laughs> um, dissertation that was not a DMP project. And they were right. So I decided I was always taught, including by B. Yorker, um, who was ultimately not only the one that got me into grad school the first time, but was also the chair of my thesis. I didn't even mention that. Mm. Um, when I did my thesis, we used to do them. I don't think they do them anymore. But my thesis was um, on the effect of therapeutic horsemanship on human field motion, Ooh. which is a Martha Rogers theoretical construct. So anyway, um even the first time around, I was really involved in um, topics that were um, things I could be passionate about. And mm -hmm. B. Yorker told me you have to be in love with your topic, which I strongly agree with. So the second time around in my doctoral project, what I tried to do then was to extract some of the key elements that had fascinated me so much about the project I wanted to do, but was unable to do, you know, at the farm. Um, and what I realized is that I had a real, had and have a real passion for educating and exploring the neurodevelopmental effects of maltreatment and trauma. Mm. I graduated in 1990, which was the very beginning of what then became called the decade of the brain. And during the 1990s, we learned an awful lot about yes. the structure and function of the brain that we previously did not know nearly as much about and there were a lot of advances made with the um, assistance of technology you know various um, scanning devices functional MRIs spec scans things like that so one of the things that I had not learned a lot about in graduate school but had later learned about and become fascinated with was um, you know what actually happens to children's brains mm. when they are not adequately stimulated, when they experience trauma and other types of maltreatment. So it was so fascinated. And I knew that I was not the only one that had kind of missed out on that content. So I decided that I would work with a rural uh, mental health center treatment team to 
just provide some basic education um, on the topic. It was an educational series that took place. I think it was over five different um, meetings. I went to their staff meetings and just took some of the time that um, they were gathered and provided a mini lesson. I did some pre and post testing, you know, just to show um, some advancement in their knowledge. And it was pretty well received. I um, based what I taught on the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, who's the founder of the Child Trauma Academy, um, who's one of my heroes. And and what what did you, uh, what was your result for this uh, uh, project that you had? Right. You... It was pretty mixed. And, okay. you know, to, to be fair, it was a very simple uh, uh, type of project where essentially it was just comparing before and after mm-hmm. and because I didn't really have that many percents, it was hard to achieve a certain, um, you know, P value, a certain statistical significance, but, um, but it was good. I mean, it definitely was trending in the right direction. So mm-hmm. it did appear that the team and uh, just anecdotally, qualitatively, I did get a lot of positive feedback that particularly the older members of the treatment team felt that this was really important information and that, um, it was important to make sure that everybody was on the same page, so to speak, when we're looking at the the behaviors and then kind of understanding some of the uh, what's happening at the neuronal level. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ooh, I, I want to read that uh, project of yours. And as we know, now I'm, I'm trying to figure out when the ACE study came about, the Al- Adverse Childhood Event. Uh, data and I know that was a big project um, did you get information from there how did you how did you uh... I did I did and and uh, Bruce Carey's uh, he actually has like a series a training series on his website but it did draw from that and many other sources we have the ACE study you know it went on for so long mm-hmm. um, I don't know when it was published maybe I don't know 15 or 20 years ago maybe less than that but um, and they had so much data, and it was so compelling. It, um, very that compelling. Was really um, pivotal. And then there's a lot of other data as well. Um, one of the things that really drew me to Dr. Bruce Perry, in addition to the fact that he's brilliant and very compassionate, excellent speaker and teacher, but when he was um, in his training as a child psychiatrist, he was told that children couldn't really experience trauma, that they didn't have. They did not develop PTSD, oh, wow. which we now know is um, completely false. <laughs> and he knew that because he had been previously been um, like a bench scientist researching the effects of stress on rats mm. and he, you know, and looking at the effect on their neural pathways and everything. So he knew that that was wrong because, you know, we are beings uh, with physical bodies and brains and nervous systems, just like a lot of other creatures mm-hmm. and absolutely we're physically impacted by maltreatment trauma. So there's been a lot of great research since that time, um, you know, showing different angles on this with different populations and um, different approaches. The, the complex PTSD as it comes about now, I think the, the science uh, in psychiatry has come a long way. Like what you said with what we know now uh, and we didn't know, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, and we it are really have. 
has. It really has. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing that science has evolved. And I think psychiatry has always been kind of been the shoo-shoo. It's like, yeah, psych, yeah, psych. But now there is science behind what we are doing and looking at the data and what we could do for best practices for uh, a more positive outcomes for our patient population, no matter which population you work with, right? Absolutely. And um, really to your point, the idea of trauma-focused care being, or trauma-informed care being best practices, um, I don't know that that was as commonplace when I did my DMP project. You know, I was really working on it. well, maybe eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, but now, you know, everybody has heard that term. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are learning now about those approaches. I feel like that it's taken a very, very long time for that heightened awareness to permeate uh, health care. We still have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. And in mental health, I'm always uh, shocked at how prevalent the histories of maltreatment and trauma are in our patients. And I think we're only beginning to scratch the surface surface in terms of the contributions that those histories make to the development later of problematic behaviors and relationship choices and, uh, and, and actually the development of psychiatric illness. Yes, the diagnosis itself, right? Where did it come from? Was it the environment? Was it uh, the neurons? Where is it? Is it a combination of both, right? Right. And there's so many different vulnerabilities. Yes. Um, And trauma is one that is theoretically preventable. Mm. So, you know, then that you keep kind of backing up from each um, finding, you know, and, (laughs) oh, well, what can we do about that? What can we do about that? So, Um, At one point, I also went to a fascinating training called Better Brains for Babies. Certified as an outreach educator. Yes, it was really great. It was um, some, a professor from the University of Georgia gave this talk and it was really trying to um, enhance awareness around how important infant mental health is, Mm -hmm. preschoolers' mental health. Um, You know, Dr. Bruce Perry talks a lot about relational poverty Uh um, or relational richness, how important it is to, you know, really help um, children from, you know, from birth Mm -hmm. feel very secure and attached and um, to develop in, in relationship. And that's so protective and could potentially prevent uh, or, or minimize the vulnerabilities to so many of the other substance use disorders and mental health problems that we see today. Oh, I I totally agree on that one because many, many years ago, they were talking about how parenting is critical, right, to the development of the baby, even in utero, right? That starts there. I mean, what what are the toxins that is being, that the, uh, the baby in utero is being exposed to and how does that affect the development of the brain? Is it the viruses that causes the schizophrenic brain or whatever it is? I mean, science is is still kind of evolving. We still have a lot of uh, things that we need to know 
but I think it's it's a great thing. And talking about the relational richness and poverty, I mean, look at where other marginalized communities are uh, and what kind of social inequities they have, what kind of social problems they have. How do we help them, right? We are in the helping agency. Mm-hmm. And I really like for nursing and nursing education to be able to focus more on those broad questions related to the social determinants of health. I feel like that we would um, elevate our nation's Mm. baseline health quite a bit if we could focus more on not just early intervention, but prevention. Yes, yes, yes. I think the preventative health is um, critical. That's my point of view. But we have a lot of education to do, yeah, even in nursing school, in our institutions, right? And how Definitely. do we how do we solve that and make it better for those in those communities that are marginalized, that are impoverished, uh, different segments of the community? How do we break that cycle? Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of things that we still have to work on, and I know you're you're one of those people, educators that are very passionate in making changes in our, in our communities. I try. (laughs) It sometimes feels daunting. You know, um, Georgia, um, Georgia has a lot of positive things about it. Yet we still continue to get pretty low grades from Mm -hmm. the National Alliance for Mental Illness, right? In terms of public mental health and uh, then even our country. We don't have particularly family-friendly um, policies uh, or parenting-friendly, uh, you know, laws, mm-hmm. and whether it comes to the workplace or, you know, things like that. So I don't want to get too political, but it's it sometimes does feel daunting. So I try to just focus on what I do have control over. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I was going to say. What can we control here? Because it's just... A lot it's the of serenity. Things. Yeah, it's the serenity <laughs> prayer. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Yes. The yes. courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. There you go. There you go. Well, that is one of the things that you kind of do in the community also to be a guest speaker for uh, and to educate people on uh, substance use, right? Substance abuse disorders. Tell me about that. Um, I've done that some. More recently, um, I've actually been talking uh, to various groups about equine-assisted psychotherapy. Do you mind if I veer off in that direction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, I've had the opportunity a couple of times recently to um, educate folks about equine-assisted psychotherapy, uh, most recently at the University of Georgia in an Animals in Society course. And I'm also thrilled. I think you're the first colleague I'm telling that I have a paper on the same topic that was accepted for presentation at the, I'm sorry, a poster was accepted um, at the American Psychiatric Nurses Association conference to be held this fall. Ooh, that is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. How exciting. Is this going to be a live conference because of COVID now? Where are we right now to, to, to see that poster? Right. I'm wondering myself, so I'm not quite (laughs) sure. It has both um, Louisville, Kentucky in October listed as a live date and December listed as a virtual date. Oh, So I'm not quite sure. I haven't really um, 
done the deep dive on the materials to see, uh, but that'll be, you know, that'll be a lot of fun. I, I do think it's important for folks to understand what's happening in equine assisted psychotherapy right now is that um, it it's kind of a glamorous topic, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll hear it um, in the media now and then. It's The problem is that it's often misunderstood. It's sometimes mistaken for another type of therapy, um, like hippotherapy, which is occupational therapy, physical therapy, or speech therapy that for a human that includes a horse in the treatment process. And then it's often confused as well with a more recreationally focused therapeutic riding type of experience, Mm. which is facilitated by an an instructor with special training to make accommodations. But that's not what we do. We're psychotherapists who are also expert horse people. um, And we very intentionally uh, create experiences and sometimes co-create with the horses and the clients. We create experiences to help. Uh, with the achievement of psychosocial and behavioral goals, um, mm-hmm. with the help of the horses. Wow! How how do, how does one achieve that? Uh, give us a, a simple explanation, to say the least. Right. <laughs> it really varies. So sometimes it's I can um it's probably easier if I try to um describe it in little bite sized uh-huh. chunks. Uh-huh. Um, so you might have. I'll give you a couple of, for instances. So you might have a client who's on the autism spectrum. Say it's a child who is eight years old, uh, has the autism spectrum disorders diagnosis, and let's say that they are nonverbal and also engaging in some self-injurious behavior. Mm -hmm. However, they're very interested in the horses and they're very very motivated. Uh to interact with the horses. So you then have a scenario where you can, with some careful planning and, and usually with some assistance, um, you can um, encourage the child to use expressive language. Mm-hmm. For example, to say walk on or to say the horse's name so that the horse will, you know, actually follow their commands. Um, And then they can move on the horse, which is even cooler than sitting on the horse. And they may also um, be more willing to um, do things, say, um, to follow directions and cease their self-injurious behavior if their hands are busy doing other fun things, Uh. right? Like brushing the horse or... um, you know, reaching to touch the horse's ear during a stretching session or helping feed the horse a snack after the session. So it's because it's so novel and so interesting, um, it really does help children like that, you know, who can be very hard to reach. Mm. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, um, I'm working with a client right now who is very high functioning. She's actually a nurse who's had a lot of trauma and, and in fact, most likely um, the trauma has um, contributed significantly to a lot of chronic medical illness. Yes. Yes. So for her being able to come out to the farm is it's sanctuary. It's Mm. a place where she feels fully accepted. She experiences hope. She experiences rejuvenation. For example, it's not just horses. We have um, 
baby, you know, goats and then baby goats. Um, There are chickens and guinea fowl and even a peacock now, Um, you know, (laughs) hatching eggs, raising babies. And um, we experience, um, you know, the the plant life, forage for mushrooms, pick muscadines, wild berries, identify uh, wildflowers. There's so much to do there. And to see the cycles of life and the seasons in the context of something that's very stable and predictable with a lot of routine and ritual, all of this has provided kind of a foundation for her to rebuild a life. Wow. And to have hope. So I would say, and she's been coming out for a very long time, I would say that it also provides kind of an anchor for people as well. Wow, um, that is amazing work there. And I know we've kind of touched uh, just on the surface on how uh, military veterans uh, or veterans with combat trauma or military sexual trauma uh, does very well with these kinds of therapies. So Yes, so of course it depends. And, and you know, to all of your listeners, just know that there's a very, if you're going to a quality program, there should be a pretty extensive program, uh, excuse me, um, process for mm-hmm. ensuring that the program that you're applying to can safely serve the client. So whether it's accommodating, what do I have a horse that's large enough for this client? Do I have enough staff if they need assistance? Do I have a wheelchair ramp if they need it? It's also important to have the degree of uh, both stability on the part of the client, whether it's medical, behavioral, psychiatric, um, you know, rule out contraindications. The client mm-hmm. can't have uncontrolled seizures. They can't be allergic to horses. A lot of these common sense things. Mm-hmm. You also have to have the um, proficiency, right? The skill set and competencies on the part of the therapist who's facilitating the session. So they should be pretty experienced uh, with trauma. Huh. Having said that, we've had a lot of children um, at our program and some adults who have had really significant trauma histories. In fact, there was a lovely study, a qualitative study done by uh, Dr. Patty Owen Smith, who may have retired, but at the time she was a psychology professor at Emory at Oxford. And she, one of her key findings was that, um, in fact, the horse enjoyed a very privileged position to be a four footed co therapist. Uh, <laughs> that really could go places the human could not go. So mm. if children or military vets, particularly those with sexual trauma, if they had felt abused or betrayed by humans, it was actually quite therapeutic for them to relate and begin to trust and even physically interact with a horse instead of a human. Wow. Um, wow. For some of them, the idea of having a human therapist whereas a human had been their perpetrator, was kind of a contradiction. Mm. So to be able to have that horse can go places that the human therapist cannot can't go, including physically, yes. right? So they can have a very uh, a close physical relationship. And then that client can begin to uh, reconnect with the idea of good touch, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, that- and choice, touch by choice. So that the victim or the the person who was sexually assaulted can have that control and and right, right. the survivors yes mm-hmm, and we've had, we've had quite a few studies done at our we've include been included in a lot of studies um, 
there was also a great qualitative study done on the uh, lived experience of adult domestic violence survivors mm. involved in equine assisted psychotherapy. And that was another one of those findings as well, uh, is that they um, were able to experience uh, physical proximity and even intimacy, of course, in a different way right. by sitting on a horse. Yeah. or petting a horse or hugging a horse that um, they could control and that felt really good and safe. How, how do people uh, who are listening can acquire, uh, uh, inquire about the, the equine-facilitated psychotherapy that you have? Mm -hmm. So anyone, I would encourage anyone, whether you're looking for a program or you're interested in adding this to your practice mm -hmm. even, um, they can email me, Maureen, M-A-U-R-E-E-N, at horsetime.org. And I've helped a lot of people. If I can't help them with services at our program, I can help them find an appropriate place somewhere else. Uh, you know, geography is a big deal. So, because um, we can't do this through the computer, so no telepsych <laughs> for, for horse time. Um However, I will do whatever I can, and I mentor and support a lot of folks, including nurses, who are trying to figure out how to responsibly add this to their repertoire. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Again, you need to email uh, Dr. Vadrine at, uh, let's see here, maureen at horsetime.org. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll start up again uh, with Dr. Vadrine. Thank you. So, Dr. Vadrine, you were talking about how um, your 501c3 uh, can be therapeutic to some, but there's a whole range of therapy, right? It's not just one aspect of it. Can you explain that, uh, that uh, concept again? That right. Well, so to kind of break it down... Um Part of why I decided that I wanted to go into any form of therapeutic horsemanship first as a volunteer uh, was because I've always been a horse person and always found interacting with horses and animals and nature to be very therapeutic. So really, at the beginning, I was wanting to be a patient at an equine assisted psychotherapy <laughs> program and one did not exist. So in true you know, change agent fashion, I decided I needed to be the change. So I ended up, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and uh, <laughs> learning about it. I, you know, I left out a bunch of things about creating, co-creating professional organizations and newsletters and presenting at conferences and visiting programs all over the country. Um, it's been a very, very, really a, a, a life adult lifelong process of creating not only my practice, but the specialty and kind of mm. the infrastructure. We're a long way from where we need to be, right. but it really has been um, an incredible experience to, you know, slowly see that field blossom. Yes. So even though we now do have a number of programs that actually offer treatment with appropriately licensed and credentialed therapists, it's important to remember, I th think that a lot of other things can be therapeutic, right? And you don't necessarily need um, a therapist to be involved. Mm -hmm. So we do have, we have had um, some of our paraprofessionals 
from a local mental health center, they bring out clients who may be involved in learning vocational skills or, um, you know, learning about um, different types of animals or different types of careers. Or um, we even have had folks who needed to do some community service. So there's different ways that people can experience the richness of a farm environment. It doesn't always have to be treatment per se. Wow. Um, or, you know, build as such, but sometimes just going out there and, you know, walking on the trails or observing the horse over the fences or petting a baby goat can lower your blood pressure. Yes. Oh, that, that is remarkable that you, you just kind of mentioned it, like, don't put the blinders on, right? Think outside of the box and you have become an innovator with how therapy how the experience can be enriched just being in that environment. It, it doesn't matter where it would be, right? Right. I mean, I think um, that's been, you had asked me, you know, in preparation for this, um, what were some of the life lessons, mm-hmm. right, in our <laughs> profession? And I would say that, you know, trying to be the change to think outside the box yes, and to not be afraid to ask the hard questions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, sometimes the hard questions are, well, why, why have we always done it this way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, why haven't we <laughs> considered other possibilities? Yes. Um, and that's how innovation happens. Yes. I, I totally agree. You just think outside the box, question, keep questioning and mm-hmm. and and learn something from it and why is it always done that way why is that process mm-hmm. the only way right right so i i think that is a, a good approach in life uh not necessarily just psychiatry or nursing but generally in life so i agree that- i agree i would also say i i think that this connects somewhat is that um when we focus too much i think part of what's therapeutic actually about the farm is that it's not totally predictable and it we it cannot be completely sanitized or hermetically sealed Mm. right um it's it's a farm right and the weather changes and there uh you know there could be despite my best efforts there might be um insects or the occasional snake or the occasional mouse or bug bites uh, you know a pile that you a pile of um uh something that came out of the end of an animal that you've got to step (laughs) over you know it's not totally controllable and that's that's good i mean the fact that um healthcare i feel like now has uh, taken on an overly reductionistic tone and become the, the idea of healthcare as kind of being a bunch of interventions kind of piled on top of each other. Mm-hmm. That's not how people heal. So I'm very committed to the idea that people heal in the context of relationship yes. and relationship involves a lot of things, you know, it involves, it involves over time. Um, it cannot ever be completely controlled or uh, predicted or stepped inside of a bottle or packed inside of a suitcase you know it's has a lot of um different components and i think movement right the change 
I'm sorry. Movement and change within the relationship, because both people or whoever is in the relationship, they they grow. They do. They do. And you know, we're not robots. Yes. Um, the other, I'm glad you mentioned movement, though, because that's truly one of the things I think is the most therapeutic about any kind of experiential treatment. Um, is that my experience of psychotherapy is that it is a learning process. And I think that people learn best in three dimensions. I think Mm. they learn best when they are actually having an opportunity to both practice some of their newfound skills, make mistakes, figure out how to problem solve, figure out how to get back on track, but also experience some real life stressors in context you know, with your therapist right there, like, Mm. wow, I don't know how to handle this. I'm getting frustrated or overwhelmed or whatever, because I feel like that provides a much richer, um, opportunity than, sorry about that text tone, um, to practice the new skill right? with with active support right there on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. To kind of have a, like a guidance, but you're really doing all the work, but then how do we, problem solve right what what skill do you have to use in order to solve that frustration right right so you know sometimes um the horses will reveal to us things that we weren't quite aware of in ourselves right so uh, a very simple example i can actually use myself as an example um well i so i was doing a motivational interviewing lab with students the other day And one of the students, her culture um, includes speaking very rapidly. So English is not her first language. And we started talking about that and, you know, totally normalizing it. And this is a process and, and laughing about the fact that people in the South talk so slow, right? (laughs) So, but one of the things I told her, and I'll tell you and your listeners is that I tend to, I tend to walk fast. So when I'm trying to lead a 1,500 or 2,000 pound horse, I really need to be aware of the fact that I need to attune or align with them. Hmm. So rather than just, you know, blazing off at my lightning speed, um, you know, pretty soon I'm at the end of the lead rope and I'm in front of them, which is not a good place to be. And they're feeling dragged you know, which is not a good start to our relationship or our day. So I really have to be very mindful and slow down, think, tune in, breathe in, breathe out, match footfalls with the horse. Um, And it kind of, it's like a little metronome. It kind of gives me an opportunity to practice that patience, practice that mindfulness. So, you know, even even times like that, I mean, it's not just healing for the client. It's also good for the therapist. I would add that uh, it's so helpful if you're doing something that you really enjoy. Yes. So, for example, some nurses, advanced practice nurses, might want to introduce art into their psychotherapeutic mm-hmm. process or music or whatever they're into. It just so happens that animals and nature is my thing. Yes, yes. And I think that that's that's the right mindful awareness that you were talking about and being in the moment that kind of is therapeutic for you and for the client or the patient itself, right? 
-hmm. you learn from that experience as a therapist, as a DNP, as a nurse practitioner, CNS, whatever the title is, mm -hmm. it's being in that moment that 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 mindfulness and that being aware that there's a relationship, there's something going on in that dynamic, right? Absolutely. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that uh, that horse time uh, a program that you have. And I'm sure you will get a lot of emails. So hold your horses <laughs> if, if that's what we want to say right now. What have you learned uh, about yourself, Dr. Vadrine? Uh, your growth, your personal growth as a nurse, as a person, as a, you know, therapist. Mm -hmm. What have you learned? I've told you some of it, and mm -hmm. I did give this some thought. I would say something I always tell my students is that all good nursing is contextual. So I feel like a lot of um, what's wrong with healthcare today is that there's too much that's overly reductionistic and decontextualized. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, again, you know, back to my statement about uh, relationship-based care, I feel like it's important to uh, reintroduce that context and understand that you're not just treating a diagnosis, you're treating a uh, whole person, that yes. they're way more than their diagnosis. And the more that you can connect with them um, as a whole person, you know, with needs and preferences and goals and roles and histories, um, the more effective you'll be not only in helping them get better today, but in helping them forge that trusting relationship with you that hopefully, uh, if you're in that type of setting, will enable you to be a much more effective part of their care team over time. So that's yes. one thing. Yes. Another thing is, um, I always tell my students, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And that's not original. I saw it on a marquee at a Baptist church that I drive by all the time. <laughs> Georgia. So I see a lot of really cool sayings on Baptist churches. Um, but I think it's true. I think that therapeutic communication um, is something that we should all practice more of. Mm -hmm. I think no matter what profession nurses are going into, they need to become more comfortable talking to people and really actively listening, yes. listening not judgmentally. And um, that, that then, again, sets the stage for that uh, trusting relationship, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what specialty you're working in. You may have a client that is having, say, a medication side effect or um, part of their regimen that they didn't quite understand. But if you're talking fast, staring at your clipboard, you know, the, your body language is saying you're in a hurry, they're not going to ask you mm -hmm. about that stuff. Mm -hmm. They're not going to tell you about that. They're just going to quit taking their medication or forget to take it the right way or take it, you know, do something incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And so just because we've, you know, filled our quota for the day and checked everything off our list doesn't mean we provided good care. Yes. Yes, that, that therapeutic communication is critical to just kind of sit down with your patient, your student, your family member, your client uh, at the, the horse time. Uh, it, it is critical that we listen actively because it's, it's not going to work if you're just not going to even look at the person eye to eye. 
right. or, or sit down there by their side and just kind of listen to them and, and see if they really understood That's what you're right. teaching. Right. It's true. I, uh, I didn't tell you everywhere I've worked because there aren't enough hours, but <laughs> one of the places I worked was at a homeless shelter. Oh, was, I think it's still there. It's an amazing, um, all nurse practitioner clinic at a homeless shelter in Atlanta. And one of the things that the founder and director said, I've never forgotten. I was sort of apologetic, right? Having worked in all of these fast paced sort of quota oriented mm -hmm. um, settings. And she said, don't ever apologize for that. She said, these clients have a lifetime of not being listened to. Mm. Is this the one in downtown? Is it, Is it Robin's place? No, I'm thinking. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I know which place you're talking about. <laughs> Community Advanced Practice Nurses. I can go ahead and say the organization. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And so that was such a blessing to hear. And I have tried to repeat it as often as possible, you know, with my students and, and mentees and so forth, because just being listened to mm. well you know the book the listening as an act of love um just being listened to is so affirming for clients and it might honestly be the first time they've ever really felt listened to by a healthcare provider mm -hmm. so you can be you know you can be the corrective experience that helps sort of change the trajectory of that individual's relationship with uh healthcare yeah 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 that that makes an all difference just being listened to and being validated, being affirmed that, yes, I have all of this. Thank you for listening to me. That's, that's what I just needed. <laughs> that's therapeutic in itself, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, along with that kind of with a wink is the idea that all nursing is psychiatric nursing. Ah, so I, I love it. The student, you know, cause very few of them will, commit during class like oh yes this is what I want to do professionally uh -huh. however I say well you know the joke's on you because I suppose there's a few exceptions right OR or whatever but for the most part if you're going to work in nursing mm -hmm. uh, everybody comes to you with you know histories and personalities and relationship dynamics and learning styles and I mean, there's so many different ways that you will pull the things that you learned in psychiatric nursing forward. I, I totally agree on that. Because when I have students or, or uh, you know, MSN students that I have to precept, and I, but they have to just do the psych portion of it, I tell them you're by default in, in psych because you're going to use that no matter where you are. That's right. It's that relationship building that understanding, that validation of the patient's uh, experience, whatever it is, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What, um, wh how do you tell your students now in nursing, what's the best tip so that they can, can realize, oh, this is for me. I want to go into psych. I want to go into med surge. How do you, how would they maneuver that? What's your best tip for them? You mean how do... How do they find how their passion? I, how to find their passion? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, sometimes it's really 
obvious and sometimes they already know it and sometimes they've already worked in a particular area like cardiology or um, NICU or whatever so they already have this really strong desire but I tell them to really try to keep an open mind because school is a time <laughs> where you can explore all of these different possibilities and you never really know I didn't know I didn't see it coming now for me it was like a lightning bolt it might not be for everyone but one of the things I do this is a roundabout way to answer your question is that I really encourage them um, to be very, um, very astute during mm -hmm. interviews mm -hmm. to think of it that they're interviewing the agency just as much as the agency is interviewing them, yes. that they want to look for a relationship that's mutually beneficial, not to go to the first place that just, you know, offers them the most money, that they really need to think about all of the the whole package, yes. right? So, um, the including the opportunities for professional support and development, continuing education, to be mentored. I encourage them to try. You know that they will. They should try to surround themselves with those they would like to emulate, right? Mm. So you want to become what you surround yourself with. So, you know, you don't want to just be stuck out. I see this a lot in mental health, actually, is that um, a lot of the initial job offers that students will get will be working at places where there's may maybe only one RN, like on a night shift running a small <laughs> unit. And I tell them, like, that's not really what you want because you're not going to learn anything. You'll mm -hmm. learn some things the hard way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you want to be in a place where you're going to be surrounded by nurses who have more experience than you. Kind of like playing tennis, right? Mm -hmm. That helps you get better. You want to be around people who know more than you, who will answer your questions, that you can um, you know, observe. You can learn a lot from them. And you want to be in a place that really supports your learning over time. It doesn't expect you to know everything from day one and just throw you in the deep end. So I think it's very important. I think sometimes students are in such a hurry, you know, to go out and sort of make money. And um, they sometimes can forget to look at all of the other benefits that one agency might afford over another. Yes, yes, I, I agree on that one because it's, again, it's, it's not just the money. Nursing is not just the money. It's about what you really do for the patient care the patients that you care for and their families because it's not just the patient itself right it's a right. whole different dynamic there why did you interview for this uh podcast dr vadrine <laughs> uh, anna sanchez you are truly one of the most extraordinary accomplished advanced practice nurses Aww. i think i've ever known and so uh just the fact that you do a podcast to me is so remarkable and honestly, we're both so busy just to be able to have an opportunity to visit with you. And lastly, you know, everyone likes to talk about themselves. So at this point in my career, I feel like it has been a really beneficial life review, if you will, to mm. kind of take stock, think back. I think that is important for us during our career periodically to kind of find some checkpoints to say, you know, am I kind of accomplishing goals? Am I on track? Do I need to... And that has really helped me actually to uh, try to be a little bit more active in um, presenting and being involved in research uh, and those types of activities. Because I feel like those are really my strong suits mm. is teaching, 
research, presenting, hopefully publishing. Yes. I'm working on a multidisciplinary study right now with the University of Georgia School of Veterinary Medicine uh, that I'm hoping we will uh, work on publishing at some point. So that's a very long answer to your question. But Anna, <laughs> I don't think I would ever want to say no to you. Oh, Dr. Vadrina and I have collaborated over the years, I guess, when it comes to her, your students uh, from the university that where you work. And I think they're excellent students and you always give me the good students and those <laughs> students that are really wanting to learn about psych, psychiatry. So I, I'm so I, glad I, that you feel that way. It's awfully hard for students. I think they're a product of our society, right? And mental health can be so stigmatized and misunderstood yes, yes. that they're scared and anxious and, you know, or don't understand the importance. And then... Um, having instructors like you has been so critical to help open their eyes and understand these are people just like everybody else, mm -hmm. um, only more so, as we say in uh, addictionology, right? They have, you know, the same type of needs. They have, uh, you know, hopes and dreams and challenges and families and struggles and, um, they're all just trying to do the best they can at mm -hmm. any given time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is very true. We we put that back on Maslow, right? What is what are the basic needs of anybody, and how right. do they self actualize? It's through our guidance as well, and of course the motivation yes. of the patient, the client. Uh, but we're there to help them uh, achieve their goals. That that's very important. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think. Two of your students are going to be precepting with me in the fall and in the springtime. I don't know if I told you that already, but those are good oh, things. Oh, I'm thrilled. So we can talk um, off air, I suppose, about, about that. Um, and one of them, I don't know that she's a Brunel student, but she came to me via a Brunel faculty member, uh, a yes. relative of hers. So this yes. is a good example for your listeners, though, of how Nurses uh, are always great at networking, mm -hmm. and we really support each other. I would put in a plug for joining your, not just national, but also your local uh, professional organizations, because Mapping, which started out as the Metro Atlanta Advanced Practice Psychiatric Nurse Group back in probably the 80s, mm. uh, now they're, they have a different name because they're statewide. Moving ahead with Advanced Practice nursing in Georgia, I think. Um, they have been so supportive to me over the years, and uh, whether it's legislation, lobbying, um, education, conferences, uh, helping, you know, people find the right job position. Um, Preceptorships, just, too. They're doing absolutely, that. Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I feel like that that's such a strength of nursing, the community, you know, the sense of, of giving back, of fellowship uh, that I feel very fortunate to be a part of. Yes, yes. We're, we're doing a um, another meeting, I think, the end of April or early May for uh, mapping. So, oh, wonderful. Yes, and we are, um, they were asking us what, what, uh, what your specialty is and why don't you lead a, uh, a group on, on that initiative and see what we can do. So I kind of 
of course, volunteered, and I will be doing okay. the military portion for oh, it. So, yeah, so it'll be a good thing. So, yes, you are so right. Please, for all our listeners, please make sure that you join uh, your local nursing groups, your local um, advanced practice groups, because the more we are in numbers, the better off we are as a lobbying group also so that we can make changes in our in uh, in healthcare and be able to state that i think that's one thing that nursing has to push more right oh absolutely i don't know how politically you want me to get but actually <laughs> going so i joined a union because you know you can't really nurses can't unionize in georgia we're a right to work state but um i feel so strongly um, about certain issues that I join um, a union as an at-large member because I agree with their uh, platform mm-hmm. that every that healthcare should be afforded to every American. I, I to- totally agree, especially in mental health. I mean, we can we can push that and and say mental health is still stigmatized. We don't get enough funding in mental health. So mm-hmm. why not lobby ourselves? Uh, be Strength in numbers is what we call it in the military, right? And yes. in the civilian population, I should say, too. But the more we are in numbers, the, the more we are heard, the more we become political uh, and let our uh, representatives know, our congressmen know that we are here. We need to make changes. So mm-hmm. there you are. What are your life lessons from your profession, Dr. Vidrine? <laughs> so I've already told you some of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wrote down a few others. I wrote down um I wrote down don't sweat the small stuff. Uh-huh. So that that's just <laughs> one. I mean, just the idea that I think one of the filters I try to use sometimes is is this going to matter in a week? Mm. You know, and because you just, you can't be good at everything. Um, you can't be perfect all the time. There's no such mm. thing as error-free learning. And sometimes you just, there's certain things you just have to let go. Yeah. Now, as a nursing professor, you know, I have to work really hard with my students on prioritizing. So when it comes to patient care, you know, we definitely have to um, be a lot more careful about not sweating things but um you know i in general i would say that sometimes it's important kind of not to take ourselves too seriously either Mm. um and realize that you know we're all a work in progress yes i also um actually i was taught this by uh, a gentleman who he's actually a professional educator himself he also worked at a place where I brought students for clinical and he taught me a lot about um, their concepts that are similar to motivational interviewing, but they're called, it's called whole health wellness. And the idea that when you're with a client, there are two experts in the room. So the idea that it is not our job to cure, it's our job to care. It's not our job to fix people. Now, sometimes there are exceptions, obviously. If, mm-hmm. you know, there was, you're um, working in with a trauma surgeon or delivering a baby. Like, you definitely have specific <laughs> goals then. But in general, particularly with chronic illness, which is the 
biggest challenge we have in America that uh, we really need, it's part of getting to know your client, we really need to collaborate with clients to help them feel educated and empowered so that, uh, you know, they're the expert on them. Mm -hmm. They understand their life, their goals, their barriers, their challenges, their histories, and to be much more intentional and respectful. I really like motivational interviewing. So I would say maybe that's not a life lesson per se, but the idea that, um, it's not up to me to, to control someone else to, you know, lecture them or uh, finger wag and try to tell them how to comply with their regimen, um, or exactly what to do, uh, to get better, but rather to try to be sort of, um, a partner in their mm-hmm. care and to determine all of the different factors that might help um, the decision making process look a little different to them than it does to me. Yes. I, I totally agree with that because it's the empowerment that we give our patients, our clients depending on where you work in the community or in the hospital, wherever it is, it's empowering them because they are, they know their lives more, right? We're not there, but uh, it's, it's being the caring person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Thank you so much for that. I know your strengths are research and, and, and the education part um, any more strengths that you might want to share us, share with us in life? You know, I don't know that it's a strength. I don't know what to owe it to. I have to really say that it feels like a higher power that mm. I have had all the right people at all the right times placed in my path. So I just feel incredibly blessed and fortunate that Mm. I've had so many of those people and opportunities um, to allow me to take the next right step, as they say in addiction recovery, to, uh, you know, have have my career unfold as it was meant to. And I would just encourage all listeners to, you know, stay open to those possibilities and Mm. and very mindful. You know, sometimes it's... um, opportunities can come from unlikely places yes yes how very true how very true and i think it's knowing your strengths dr vadreen when you know your strengths things just suddenly open up things happen (laughs) i i I kid you not that that's that's what i see uh if you know your strengths things will just pop up and you are just gonna thrive in whatever Whatever that passion is, I think that's critical in, in, in life, in nursing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of said it all. You're grateful at all the people, all the experiences that you've had and how your, your career, your passion has unfolded into many, many different things in life. And you have touched so many people, not only your students, but your patients and your clients and in the many um, capabilities that you've had. So I really, really am thankful, Dr. Vedrine, for talking to you today in this podcast. I am sure a lot of our listeners are 
are going to be thinking outside of the box and and looking at innovation and how we can we can do our nursing in other parts you know in in life and see what we can do and make that change thank you so much i really appreciate your time and the opportunity to share some of my experiences and ideas with your listeners. Wow. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vadrine. Um, I appreciate you. Until next time, this is Ana Sanchez, your host. Uh, this is the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast. Thank you. The Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner Podcast is a weekly podcast where I share with you my passion in the field of psychiatry. My hope is to build a community where we can have empathy and compassion for those struggling with mental health conditions. Find me on Instagram at Anna Sanchez underscore psych underscore NP and at the Psychiatric Nurse Practitioner and subscribe to my podcast. Thank you. This psychiatric nurse practitioner podcast does not constitute for medical or psychiatric advice. This podcast is not intended to replace professional psychiatric assessment. The ideas expressed in this podcast do not reflect the position of the speakers, authors, affiliated medical and nurse practitioner organizations. Thank you.